There we go. Now we are now recording. Um, and I apologize to those of you because I am uh, about 15, 20 minutes in, and certain people in the class did not yell at me to turn this on. So I'm blaming them. Uh, we're talking about study um, materials and how to look up words. And we're specifically looking at the use of a concordance. So we've got the word gospel. We have the location of the word, because it says right there, 116, we're in the book of Romans, so it's Romans 116. So what you would do is look up alphabetically, because it's, it's organized that way, the word gospel. Okay? And then it's going to list the word gospel in order of appearance through the New Testament. Okay? If it's a word that appears in the Old Testament, it's going to start with Genesis. But in this case, it's a New Testament word. It's going to um, list it from Matthew all the way through the Revelation. So you're just going to scan through. You're going to, here's Romans. Here's Romans 1. Here's Romans 1.16. There we have it. Okay? It's going to give you the word and a little bit of a phrase. And then it's going to give you a number. And the number keys you to a list in the back. So you're going to go to the back. And, yep, this is the Greek one. Um, and you simply look up the number in order. And then the number is going to give you the Greek letters and then a transliterated word. A transliteration is English letters for the Greek letters. It doesn't translate it. It simply writes the Greek word with English symbols. Okay? Uh, so agape, for example, would be A-G-A-P-E. Okay? That is not how you spell agape, because agape is a Greek word. You spell it with Greek letters, right? That's the English transliteration of it. And then it's going to give you a brief definition of it. But I mean brief, because it's got every single one, every single word used in the Old Testament or the New Testament in just that much. Okay? The rest of this is the concordance part. So, obviously, they can't give you much depth. Almost always, if you simply look it up and see what this book has to, set, to offer and you go by that definition, you're going to miss what I'm trying to get at. Because what I'm trying to get at is a bit deeper than that. Okay? So now what do you do? Well, you've got the Greek word now. Now's the best time to go to Vines because even if they don't tell you which... Uh, passages, because they they're not going to list all the passages, uh, and they don't list the passage you're looking for, if you look up the word gospel, and if you think it might be a different word in, uh, in the King James, then open up a King James. Um, they're not hard to find. They're all, by the way, almost all of these you can find free on the Internet. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, so you go to this, and you find the word gospel, and... You do have to be able to spell, by the way. Um, and now I've got gospel, and it lists the different Greek words that might be translated that. Now, with the word gospel, frankly, you don't have a lot of variety. Um, with some of the words, you're going to have four, five, or six. You already know which one it is. So you're going to be able to go to that one and read, instead of a line, a paragraph, or in some cases, three or four paragraphs. You're not going to get much more than that because, again, that's all there is. Okay? So let's say you want to go deeper than that. Then you go to a book like this. This is what's called Little Kittle, uh, formerly known as the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, abridged uh, in one volume. 
The reason it's uh, abridged in one volume is this is a condensation of a 10-volume uh, set. It's one dictionary, 10 volumes. We have all but one of them in the Resource Center over there if you want to use that. I have a full set in my library. Um, what you're going to find is you have to read about five different languages to get everything out of it because uh, it was originally written in German, and so they translated, well, this was written in English, but what it, what it is abridging was originally written in German. They translated the German into English, but when he quoted French, they still quote French in French. When they quote Latin, they quote Latin in Latin. And so good luck if you don't happen to read all of those. But you can still get a fair amount. So with a word like gospel, you're going to get a one or two word definition in this. You're going to get in vines uh, a paragraph, maybe two. And in this, you're probably going to get a page or two. And if you really wanted to study it, then there's a number of other resources I can turn you on to. I'm not going to go into depth right now because most of you are not going to do that. Um, Agape is a great example. Agape in uh, the concordance, you're going to have one or two words. Usually it's just going to say love. They're not even going to help you understand, okay, what love? Uh, you know, if you look into Webster's, you're going to have 20 or 30 definitions. So which one are we talking about? So then you go to Vines, and Vines is going to give you a good paragraph. And by the way, list other words as well, so you can contrast what's the difference between agape and phileo. And, and you're, you're going to read both of those if you go deep and understand why that word is unique. Then you're going to go to Little Kittle, and you're going to get several pages. And then if you really want to, want to you can go to Big Kittle, the 10-volume version, and you're going to get 150 pages. And if you want more after that, I've got more resources. Uh, I will help you scratch where it itches. But I suspect most of us aren't going to do that. And for what I'm asking you for, you're never going to have to go that deep to the 10-volume version. Sometimes it will be this level. Most of the time it will be this level. Okay. And sometimes it's going to be pretty basic. It's just so important that I'm going to put it in so we have a basis for what we're doing. So um, I have one other book over here that I'm going to introduce to you real quick, and then I want to talk to you about electronic study. Uh, this is a topical Bible. Uh, I haven't asked you to do anything yet in the study guide, but I will. And I do occasionally ask you to do something in the Sunday morning study guides. Um, I actually got complaints uh, last year that I was asking too much and had become too, gone too deep on it. Uh, so those of you who use those may notice that I backed it off a little bit um, because some of the uh, small groups using it were finding themselves a bit lost, mostly according to the leaders because the people in the group weren't actually doing the study. And so there was nothing to discuss because they hadn't done the study. I'm not going to really apologize for a study guide that requires study. Because somehow it seems to me intuitive. But what a topical Bible does that's different than what we've just done is that, it, it, as it says, it focuses on a topic. So, for example, we've been talking about love a little bit. If I want to look up the word love, then... I've got dictionaries that are going to help me. But what if I want a broader understanding? For example, one of the primary loves that we talk about in our culture, and it is known in the Bible, although it's not actually um, used by the word that we use, would be a romantic love. 
Is romantic love bad? Okay. Yeah, the answer is no. For those of you who are staring at me wondering if I'm trying to trick you, uh, no, it's not, of course. But what does the Bible actually say about it? Well, you're not going to find that word in those dictionaries. But this is going to talk about love as a topic. And so it's going to broaden it out and give you more. Marriage. If you're looking up the word marriage in a concordance or a dictionary, it's going to give you only translations of the word marriage. Well, what about Ephesians 5, which talks about husbands and wives, and, and the pretty significant passage about marriage, but never uses the word marriage. It's about the subject, but not using the word. This will give you a lot of references to help you, including, for example, Ephesians 5, for that subject. So, it goes by topic instead of word. It's real simple and real basic, and um, all of these, with the exception of the New American Standard um, uh, Concordance and the Little Kittle, are public domain, which means they can be printed by anybody, and they'll be printed cheaply, and you can get them relatively cheap. Never pay full price. And personally, I would say don't buy them new. I won't buy a new car either. So, I mean, that's my philosophy. I'll let you pay the extra 10000 thank you, and then I'll get it from you about 10,000, 15,000 miles into the life of the car um, and get a giant bargain on it. Books are the same way. You can get a $35, $40 book, sometimes those red ones, uh, for 5 bucks on Amazon. And somebody else paid 30 bucks more because I bought it from them used. I'm good with that. I don't wish that on them, but I'm totally good with them being the ones that spend it instead of you or me. Okay? Um, again, all of these are available over here, plus a whole lot more if you want to go play with these resources. Okay? Um, I'm pretty sure whoever's coming has gotten here already tonight, so I'm going to shut this. Now, some of you do your study online. If you do, would you please tell me what websites you're currently... Don't tell me what you used two years ago, because they'll change that quick. What are you currently using? Okay, that's one of the more common ones. I'm going to write these up so you can write them down if you want. Blue Letter Bible. And I believe that's www.blueletterbible. Right? Just, it's just written out. Okay. Bible Hub. I'm going to run them together like that because it's also... Now, that's .com? Okay. Okay. Bible Study Tools. Okay, and again, it's a www and then that's the URL.com. Any of you using eSword? Bible Gateway is a real, by the way, uh, that's a .org, isn't it? Yeah. You don't want to go to .com on that one. Um, Bible Gateway. Okay. .org. Um, E-sword. Who's used it? Yeah, I believe it's com. 
Yeah. Um, that used to be good. I have not looked at it for a couple of years. I don't do online stuff. I have a resident program, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, any others? <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, there's a number of specialized ones out there. Um, I may introduce some of those. There's a map program that uh, I've got to go back. I haven't used it in a couple of years, but um, it's really, it was really cool because uh, I think it was just BibleMaps.org, and you go to it and enter the passage, and if it's talking about a narrative, it gives you whatever places are in the passage. If it's a letter, it gives you the place the passage was written to. And I, I mean, by place, it's, they give you a map of it to just take you geographically to where it would be. Dot .net, okay. So forget that com and put a net in there. All right. These are all free, okay. You're going to find most of the resources are older that they use. And the reason for that is very simple. There's no fee to use them. There's no copyright fee. If they want to put something like this in, a lot of money went into developing this. Um, even though I, yeah, it is a for-profit company, Erdman. Um, some of them are even non-profit companies, and they still have to put a lot of money into them. So somewhere they've got to pay for it. And so uh, we're going to end up paying for it because fees are going to be charged. But if something's in public domain, and it's all about how long it's been out there, then it's free. Um, Strong's, Vines, Naves, all written 140 years ago. The Bible hasn't changed since then. So they're decent resources. But they're free. Uh, now it still takes somebody coding all of that into an electronic resource. So that doesn't mean you're going to find every, every uh, resource you're wanting uh, that's available because Somebody's got to think it's important enough and going to be used enough to put the time and effort to do that. But that's the kind of things these are using. A lot of times, uh, a lot of these will also give you various translations and the ability to uh, compare them. Uh, some of them will even give you the Greek. Um, those of you who were with me, anybody remember the name of the wave? Yeah, if you actually want to, there's a, an app that's put out by some uh, people at Biola, I believe. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's Wave Bible. Um, it is free, or at least the uh, Apple version was. Now, they may be charging. If they are, it's going to be like a buck or two, um, because I got it when they were still testing it. Um, and it will not only give you some of the English resources, it gives you the Greek if you can read the Greek letters, and you can hover over the Greek, and uh, it will give you a one or two word definition and parse it, tell you the tense and so forth. We're going to be getting into the, the significance of tenses during our study. So there's some really good resources. Now, if you want to go deeper um, and invest some money into it, that was wrong. Press the button and turned it off instead of turning it on. But I'm waiting. Um, there's two programs. There's a lot of others, but there's two that are head and shoulders above every other one. Um, one of them is exclusively PC, and it's called PC Bible uh, PC Bible Study. 
Um, it is put out by BibleSoft. That's the, the company. So you can go online and look at it. It's kind of like uh, getting cable. You know, there's the basic package, and then there's the 100, 200, 300, 400, 70, 900 uh, channels. And uh, they've even got a chart to show you what resources are in which level. And some of these, because this is an actual program, you, you physically get a disk, and you, uh, or you can get a license and download it now online. But you actually own it. And if you've got the disk, you can sell it, which means you can buy it used. And I've done that with, with programs before. There's nothing in the world illegal or wrong with it. It's just like selling a used book. So consider doing that because the version I use is not even the highest version. It's the second highest. Uh, we got a group deal because we, we bought uh, for church staff and eldership licenses for each one to use. And um, mine is $600, give or take. Okay. And, like, and that's not the highest version. The highest version is one that you really wouldn't even use unless you're teaching at a graduate level. Um, if you're using a Mac platform, um, sorry, this won't work. Um, there's an app, by the way, for this. Don't use it. It is, it is the next thing to worthless compared to the program itself. And it's expensive. It's way more expensive because it's a subscription, whereas this is you buy the program, it's your program, period. It's resident on your machine. Whether you've got Wi-Fi or not doesn't matter. It, you've got the program. Um, for the Mac, there's a version called Logos. And um, it does almost exactly the same thing. And I don't use it. I used it years and years and years in, a, in an earlier version. And it crashed my computer all the time. But they have changed it radically. And I know a number of people who use it who love it. It is more expensive than PC Study Bible. So for one that's got all the stuff mine's got, everything that I've shown you and pretty much any, any resource I tell you about is on my PC Study Bible. I almost never use hard copies anymore because it's all geared together. Um, but uh, for that same thing for Logos, it's going to cost probably about 25 to 30% more, okay? Uh, because not as many people buy for, for, for the Mac platform as they do for the PC platform. But if you're going to do serious study and you're going to do it a lot, and you plan on doing it for years, and hopefully you will, it's not a bad investment. And in the long run, it's way cheaper than going out and buying a bunch of hard copy. Plus, picture running to Starbucks for some you know, getaway time to actually just study and carrying about 10 of those. I've done that in the old days, you know, um, and it's just ridiculous. You just you walk it in like this and you plop it down and take up the whole table and um, everything there is on this plus a whole lot more. So you don't have to do that, okay? Um, you're going to need some of those resources. You're not going to be able to do the study without some of the resources. Not necessarily the ones online. You can use the paper versions. But it does require that, assuming you have not mastered uh, Kine Greek and ancient Hebrew. Anybody done that? Okay, so 
we're all on the same page there. Any questions about the basic Bible study resources? Everybody feel comfortable using them? No. Okay. So here's what I would suggest you do. Make a note. There's that yellow sheet again. Grab that and make a note. Um, just uh, Bible study. And that will tell me, because I can sit down and do a tutorial with you for an hour, and I guarantee you, you'll be able to use any of the paper products or, or paper uh, versions that we're talking about. Um, I mean, I can show you how to use this, too. It's not going to do any good if you don't have it. But um, it's, it's not complicated. It's just knowing how to use the tools. And it's like any other tool. The more you use the tool, the more comfortable with the tool you are, and the faster it's going to be. So if you haven't done that, it's, it's nothing to be ashamed about, nothing to be uh, worried about. Just let me know. Um, I actually get paid to do that. Isn't that a racket? And I'd love to sit down and teach you how to do that. And like I said, it would take about an hour, and that's it. Okay? So I'll pass this around. If anybody wants to make a note like that, just put a note or something like that on your name, and then I will contact you and we can set up a time. That, now, that's the last time I'm going to do that generically. I may bring out some more specific resources as we go through the study that you might find useful. But for tonight, we last week did the introduction and got into um, verse 15, I believe it was. Yes. So tonight we're looking at Romans 1, 16 through chapter 3, verse 20. It does not mean you can't ask any questions about what came earlier. You're, you're perfectly free to do that. I would prefer you do it up front so I don't find myself back and forth, back and forth. Um, but I will not uh, entertain questions about Romans 12, for example, because we're not there yet. Okay? Uh, when we get there, then it will be Romans 1 all the way through Romans 12. And always backtrack and ask questions. So from your study guides, from your study, uh, or simply from reading the passage or general curiosity, knowing what it is, do you have any questions about Romans 1.1 1, 1 through 3.20 that you would like to make sure that I address? Yes, ma'am. problems looking up the words, um, or, by the way, and I will do this with every one of the study guides, the last question will read, what question or questions would you add to this study guide? So if you had one you wanted to add, either because you don't know the answer or because you'd like it to be discussed, then this would be a good time to bring that up to make sure that I put that on the agenda for tonight. Okay, so tonight is simple. We've got historical context. Last week we talked about the historical background, and I told you that most scholars date this roughly mid-50s A.D., 
Um, to put that in context or in perspective, Jesus was crucified roughly, and again, I'm going to keep saying roughly, but any dates going back that far are estimates. We, we don't have specific dates put on anything, and even if we did, it wouldn't help because they used a different calendar. They didn't even use the calendar that was in wide use before the one we're using. There's been a couple of changes. So translating a date to the next calendar and then to the next calendar and then trying to uh, narrow it down based on other references, uh, we don't know exact dates for anything that far ago. But roughly, Jesus was crucified A.D. 30. The day of Pentecost, the founding of the church, was only seven weeks later. Excuse me. So now we're looking at 50, let's say it's 54, 55. So we're talking 24, 25 years later. And today, if I go back 25 years, uh, the information available, um, technology, all sorts of things have changed drastically. But remember, that's a curve that just keeps getting steeper and steeper and steeper. We're talking about a time where if someone published a letter and that letter was to be read by everybody, um, let's say everybody in the Mediterranean world, you can count on four or five years before that's really made the circuit. Okay? Because there wasn't a systematic way to do it. It's going to be taken by people who travel, and um, it's generally not going to be taken unless it was like a military proclamation or something, in which case it's going to be months, because you've got the military doing it instead, and they're doing it very intentionally. The reason I'm saying all of that is because the gospel is new. Even though it's 24, 25 years old, it's new. People are just starting to hear it. Um, it's been out. There's, there's churches in the Mediterranean world that have been founded. There's even churches, or at least Christians, who have been in Rome. But there is something else happening. There's a couple of cultural movements that come into play. One of them is called Pax Romana. Anybody's Latin strong enough to just throw that one out? Pax Romana. Peace of Rome. The Peace of Rome was implemented how? What? But how? Exactly. Swords, pretty much. Uh, the, the Peace of Rome was throughout the Mediterranean world. And when you look at this, by the way, uh, it... This doesn't, it almost sounds blasphemous to say it because it sounds like I'm being sarcastic, and I'm not. The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. You know, why did the gospel not come a uh, hundred years earlier? Or for that matter, a hundred years later? This is one of the main reasons. Because you could travel anywhere in the Mediterranean world with relative safety. And the reason for that is if you were found to be robbing anybody, anybody, you were going to be crucified. Period. And you knew what crucifixion was. We know academically. They knew because they saw bodies hanging and they would be alive for days, writhing in agony before they finally died. And then they'd just leave them up there 
for quite a while just to really gross you out and make you think, I don't want that happening to me. It was extraordinarily effective. If you happened to do something against a Roman citizen, it got worse, believe it or not. Um, you could, for example, not only be crucified, you'd be tortured first, and your family could be killed. So by being that brutal, they actually had a very low crime rate and an ease of travel and communication across the Mediterranean world enforced by the Romans. It's actually quite effective. I don't know that I'd want to live under it, but it was quite effective. Okay? You did have, however, another thing happening, and that was that the Roman Empire was built on conquest. And the problem with that is you've got a small group of people conquering a whole bunch of other peoples. Peoples. Okay? Now, by now, by this time, we're talking uh, into northern Europe, we're talking the British Isles, Iberia, uh, all through northern uh, uh, Africa, uh, as far east as uh, Persia, what we would call Iran, um, and, and some forays further out than that. Well, there weren't that many Romans. Rome was a city, by the way, not a country. And so what they would do is they would co-opt others. They would bring them into the army. Um, they would co-op other governments. And, and that was always a bit precarious. <laughs> this is why Pilate, when he was being threatened with, uh, he's not a friend of Caesar's, you know, we have no king but Caesar. He's not Caesar's friend. All of a sudden, Pilate gets antsy. He didn't want anything to do with crucifying Jesus. But as soon as Caesar's name came up, guess what happened? <laughs> because he didn't want any kind of uprising, because that, to put it mildly, would reflect very negatively on him. Um, and as a military commander, uh, that could lead to all sorts of bad things, usually being stationed at some really far-reaching place where the chances of you surviving are pretty slim. That's the kind of thing that would happen. And so how do you unify an empire like that? All of these different peoples. You have to have something that's going to help them hang together. Part of it was the power itself. You align with us, you get power too. Because now you're Roman. You served in the army for, I think it was 20 years successfully. You were given baselines. There were, there were levels of citizenship, but you were given citizenship. If a city in a rebellious area supported Rome against the rest of the area, the people in that city in perpetuity, were given Roman citizenship. And that was extremely valuable because the Romans could do whatever they wanted to people who weren't Romans, pretty much. If you were a Roman citizen, the law basically only applied to you in so much as it protected you. They didn't really care about the others. Okay? So that was a big deal. But the other way they did it is through faith, through religion. I, even though it's a bit trite, I don't consider my faith a religion. If you've heard the old, it's a relationship, not a religion. Well, sociologically, of course it's a religion. But this is certainly a religion. And what they would do, because there was almost every group, in fact, the only ones who really weren't were the, the, the Mithra worshippers of Persia and the, um, the Jews in Palestine. 
were monotheists. Everybody else was a polytheist, meaning lots of different gods. And if you've got lots of different gods, one more is no big deal. So, we have the cult of the empire, and we have the worship of the emperor. And one of the things they would do is require a sacrifice to the emperor to know that you were bought into this. Okay? And, it, and it built a common worship, no matter what else gods you used. Okay? There's a problem for people like us. What's the problem? Yeah. And, and there's this whole command thing about don't worship idols. And so the Jews would not worship, would not do sacrifice to the emperor. They might pledge obedience, but they would not make sacrifice. The Jews were labeled atheists because they only believed in one God. They didn't believe in the rest of the gods. So they, the Romans considered them atheists. The Christians were considered a Jewish cult because it came out of Judaism. And, of course, the Christians also would not offer sacrifice to the emperor. So, historically, one of the things going on here is you've got political turmoil that comes with any empire as it reaches its furthest level. Study history. Every empire will continue to grow until it gets to a basic breaking point, and then it implodes because it's stretched just a little too far. And the Romans were there. And on top of that, there was one other thing, and that is if you study Roman history, it's a fascinating time, that first half of the first century. Really, maybe even the first 65, 70 years. It's a fascinating time to study Roman politics. It went from a republic to an empire. Um, actually, it had done that substantially a few years before the turn of that, what we would call the turn of the century into the A.D. era. Uh, but it was being solidified. But they had a turnover of emperors that is mind-boggling. And if you've ever heard of the really weird ones, like Nero, now he was ten years later than this, um, Caligula, he was a little bit before this, uh, they were related, by the way, um, that's, this is what was going on in the Roman Empire. I've got a book, in fact, that uh, goes through the um, perceived, it, it's from a distance, diagnosing the mental illnesses of the first century Roman emperors. Um, and it's really pretty fascinating because we have enough history to get a pretty good basis. By and large, these people were nuts. Okay? And on top of that, the most unhealthy thing you could do is become emperor. Because now you're the guy with the target on you. And the life expectancy of the emperors was very, very brief. How do you deflect that? How did Hitler deflect all of the uh, accusations and the, and the fear against himself when he came in? Anybody know the history? Yeah. He created a common enemy. There was already anti-Semitism. So, take advantage of that. 
everything's their fault. To a, to a point of insanity. I mean, when you, if you go and you read the early stuff, it wasn't just hatred of a race. What about race? It was about trying to blame everything in an entire culture on one group of people. And the, the extent that they went to it was just nuts. But people loved it. Because it gave them a way to explain the bad things that were happening, and it created a unity. And they were on the inside. They were us, not them. Well, Hitler got that from first century Rome. There's no question about this historically. Because the Roman emperors did that with the Jews first, and the Christians, because they considered them simply to be a brand of Jew. And they were all atheists. And the gods must be mad at us whenever anything's going bad, because we tolerate people who will not honor them, who say they don't even exist. We can't tolerate them anymore. So by the time of the writing of this letter, there were all sorts of persecutions that had erupted, not near as systematic as it's going to happen in the next century, but very effective still. And it was not a healthy thing. We also talked last week about the fact that Rome was basically a city of slaves, far more slaves than there were free people. And that's a bit dangerous, if you stop and think about it, because at any given time, the slaves can rise up against the others. And if the armies are out in England, which was several months' travel at that time, at the, at the quickest, um, they could and did rebel and rebel successfully. How many of you have seen the movie Spartacus? Spartacus is real. I mean, not necessarily the Kirk Douglas version, but uh, that was a real thing that had happened um, a generation earlier. And that was very much in the minds of these people. So for people who identify with the lower classes, and Christianity was a faith primarily rooted in the lower classes and in the slaves, um, they were not trusted. And it was scary. That's the people Paul's writing to. Now, from the Christian side... Paul is commissioned to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. What's ironic about that? We talked about that last week and said we'd go into that this week. Anybody catch the irony of that? Yeah. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Whenever you read in the New Testament, the Pharisees were testing Jesus. One of those was Paul. He was there. He was prime student. He's student of Gamaliel, who was the leading rabbi of the Pharisees. So I guarantee you he was there. And very quickly, after the formation of the church, he was given power and authority, not only in Jerusalem, but to go into other countries and grab Jews who had become Christians and bring them back in chains. And that power, by the way, had to come not just from the Sanhedrin, but the Romans had to say yes to that. You didn't, you didn't have a Jew who goes into Syria and just start putting people in chains. That was a great way to get killed. But he was given that authority. So here's this guy who was a Pharisee who would have considered contact with Gentiles literally to make him unclean. He would not even eat with one. He wouldn't go into their homes. And now his life is about taking the gospel to these people. And guess who becomes his biggest enemy? The people out to kill him, literally all over the world. Well, not just Jews. The Pharisees, 
or those influenced by the Pharisees. In, the, in Christian parlance, they became known as Judaizers. You didn't, you didn't become a Christian and keep the word Pharisee because after a while, the rabbis said, you cannot be both, and you were put out of the synagogue. That was actually only about 10 years after this letter. But, yeah, there were, there were Pharisees and Pharisee followers literally all over the world trying to kill him because of what he was doing. It's beautiful. Uh, the Lord has got a sense of humor. Okay, that gives us the background and pretty much brings us to where we are and one of the problems of using a computer for your study is it goes to sleep and then you have to wake it up again. I did too give you the right password. There it is. Okay. So we're in 16, and since we're in 16, what's happened in the first 15? <coughs> Anybody? Jew first. 
Because he's better? Is that what he's saying? Pardon? They were the chosen, which meant the gospel started with them. Well, they were given the law. They shared the law sometimes. Uh, Gentiles could, could see the law. And by the way, anybody could become a Jew. Remember that. Jew was not about DNA. It was about faith. So you could convert from being a Gentile, regardless of your race, to be a Jew. Um, you simply had to follow the law in all of its practices, which means even if you're an adult, if you're male, first thing you're going to do is be circumcised. Uh, we're going to talk about that more next week and what that is, because Paul's going to get into that quite a bit. But the Jews then were the fertile ground, so to speak, for the gospel. And it was out of the Jews and the Jewish Messiah that the gospel came. Okay? Now, one of the things that we're going to need to watch is the relationship between Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, and because sometimes the word Greek is simply used as a metonymy. Metonymy is a figure of speech where the part is for the whole or the whole is for the part. And it's simply a representation of Gentile. So if it says Greek and barbarian, okay, now they're talking Greek, which meant educated and cultured, and then all the rest of those who aren't. But if he uses just Greek as opposed to Jew, most of the time he's meaning Jew and Gentile. Okay? And that was very common figures of speech back then. For it is the righteousness of God in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. And I ask you, I believe, is the righteous shall live by faith an Old Testament or New Testament concept? What? Okay. And how do you know that? Yeah, because he's quoting the Old Testament. Remember, when he's quoting Scripture, the New Testament had not been assembled yet. He's writing it, literally, as, as he does this. So when he's quoting Scripture, automatically that means it's the Old Testament. We have this dichotomy. No, the Old Testament is all about law. The New Testament is about grace and faith. Wrong. 100% wrong. The Old Testament was about law showing grace and faith. And all the concepts about grace and faith that are taught in the New Testament are from the Old Testament. Jesus himself quoting from it copiously. Paul quoting from it constantly. Peter preaching from it. So this concept that Romans puts forth, and this is really, uh, it's, it's probably a theme sentence for Romans. The book of Romans is about the fact that we don't live by law, we live by faith. And that sounds like an extraordinarily simple statement, clearly not quite so simple, or he would have stopped there, right? But that's an Old Testament teaching. It's not, it's not a whole new thing. And that's something that, as Christians, we need to understand because frequently we get into trouble thinking God somehow changed so, for example, there's a, one of my favorite Old Testament books is a, a prophet who proclaims that God is a God of compassion and mercy. He not only proclaims it, he was complaining when he proclaimed it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You all know. You just don't know you know. Why did Jonah get swallowed by a whale? 
Well, he wasn't arrogant. He was something, though. He was definitely disobedient. He went the wrong way, and he did it on purpose. He's supposed to go inland. He goes to the sea and takes a ship that way. And the reason was simple. He had been told to go proclaim the gospel to the people who had conquered Israel. And he didn't want to. And by the gospel, I mean repentance. I mean, the, the gospel of Jesus hadn't happened yet. But God says, go tell them that because of their sin, they're going to be destroyed. And you would think a prophet of God who doesn't like them would kind of relish that. But he didn't. He went the other direction. And God raised up the storm. He literally stopped the ship. He convicted uh, Jonah to where Jonah finally told him, I just throw me overboard, and he did. The fish comes, swallows him up, spits him out on the Mediterranean coast where he had started. So it's like, now, I want to start that one again? And now he has to go east, like he was told to do from the, from the very beginning. He does, and he goes and proclaims that they're going to be destroyed. And guess what they do? They repent. And then God's got the gall to forgive them and not destroy them. And it was devastating to him because he hated them. And by the way, again, if you understand the history, that was, there was a lot to hate there. And he complains, I knew you were a God of mercy and compassion. This is the Old Testament God of fire and judgment, right? No. God of mercy and compassion. Always was. God has not changed. So Paul is simply a Pharisee who knew all of this, who finally focused on it and is now teaching other people. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Now who's he talking about? I'm going to ask you questions like that all along just to keep going back to the text. So it's always about going back to the text. And it's not a trick question. If I ask you a trick question, I'll tell you it is a trick question. All unrighteous. Yeah. Which, by the way, is pretty much everybody. He's going to establish that in, in another few paragraphs. So he's, he's not just talking to Jews. He's not just talking to Gentiles. He's talking to everybody. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Because God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they're without excuse. This is what we call natural revelation. If you ever get into systematic theology, uh, is one of the terms that's going to come out. That God has revealed himself in a number of different ways. And the most obvious and the most broad is, look at creation. And you can learn an awful lot about God through creation. He himself has conversations with people like Abraham and Job um, about, uh, have you not seen this? Or aren't you looking at this? Uh, to point out lessons that they should learn from creation. So Paul says, now this, is, this is available to everybody. Everybody can see this. Everybody can understand the basics of this. So they're without excuse. Verse 21, For even though they knew 
whoops, scrolled a little too far. For even though they knew God and did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Excuse me. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. What does that mean? What, are, what is he talking about when he says that? It's a very dangerous statement for him to make. They exchanged the uh, incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Okay, specific. Caesar. Remember the background. Okay. Um, if, you, if you were Christian and you were willing to worship Caesar, just make a little sacrifice to Caesar, you're fine. Nobody bothered you. But of course Christians wouldn't do that. This is one of the reasons. Because Paul is, is nailing that teaching. Um, and uh, birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures... And now in verse 24 you hear one of the most damning and disturbing statements of what's happened in God's creation. Because of that, that's what the word therefore means, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then, interestingly enough, he says, Amen. <laughs> What's the word Amen mean? I should have put that on the list, but I didn't. Uh, close. It means, let it be so, or truly. Okay? Uh, when you see in the King James, verily, verily, you know, none of us goes around saying verily, um, but that's the word. It's, a, it's an, actually an Aramaic word that became used in Greek from the Hebrew influence, amin. So when he says this, the, blessed who is, uh, the creator who is blessed forever, let it be so. This is true. It, it, that's that's the, the ending. He's not uh, saying the end to a prayer. And that's kind of how we see it. You know, when you hear an amen, that means it's time to eat. Right? Grace is over. He's, he's done with his long-winded thing. You can eat now. No. Amen meant, I agree with this. Let it be so. Uh, this is a true statement. It's an affirmation. So what Paul just said is, God gave them over. It's kind of a horrifying thing, but it's a picture of a basic dynamic between God and those who will not repent. That there is a point where God says, you want it? No problem. You got it. And God no longer strives with those people. That's what giving them over means. You see it as far back as the Exodus. Um, it's also known as hardening their hearts. God is said to harden the, hearts, the heart of Pharaoh. How did he harden Pharaoh's heart? Anybody remember the story? Did he make Pharaoh get upset? What did he do? Well, actually, he did do something quite specific, but it's a little tricky. When Pharaoh's heart was hard, 
It was when he wasn't struggling. So God would bring a plague. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh softens. Pharaoh's now interested. God's got his attention. He's willing to talk to Moses. He's willing to hear. What is this you want? And then God removes the plague. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And Pharaoh says, forget it. Change my mind. You're not going anywhere. All the way to the final plague, the loss of the firstborn, which totally softened his heart. It destroyed him because his own son was one of those. And he let the Israelites go. He gave them wealth. He, it was like, get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. And as soon as they were gone and that plague was no longer active, his heart was hardened. God hardens your hearts by not struggling with us anymore. By leaving us alone. And that's terrifying. When God is convicting you, when you're feeling a lot of guilt, and, God is, and you just feel yourself wrestling with God over something, that's a really good sign. Because <laughs> that means um, he's, he's interacting, he's, according to Hebrews, he's treating, treating you like a child, his child. He's disciplining you. But when he says, no, you're not my child, I'm not going to discipline you then now you're given over to whatever you have desired and now you're going to get the results of that stuff and that's never good. So he goes on to discuss this. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Um, now, this is a big political thing to us today. hasn't been through most of history, but it is to us. Uh, understand, homosexual behavior was not news to these cultures. Okay? Uh, the Romans frowned on it, but they kind of don't ask, don't tell. The Greeks embraced it. What a big deal. Alexander the Great was known to what we would have called bi- to be bisexual. Um, and you know, it was like, well, that's what you want, so who cares? Okay. But Paul has a different view. Now we have to ask ourselves a question because we find ourselves under the influence of our culture. Is right and wrong determined by what our culture collectively decides is right and wrong? If it is, we should have a problem with this. And many people do. The church right now in America is going through an amazing shift. Um, Today, one of the most famous televangelists came out in favor of homosexual relationships um, and homosexual marriage. Why? Because that's the cultural norm. And he's simply supporting the cultural norm. We have to make a decision. Do we believe the scripture is indeed God's word? If we believe that, we've got to listen to this and accept the authority of it. It's got nothing to do with what you like or what you're comfortable with. It's God has his teaching. And if I disagree with God, guess who's right? It's not me. Uh, This is not condemning people from other people. This is not me saying, I'm going to go out and hunt these people down and, and, and pile on, so to speak. 
because I'm instructed to love everyone and to bring the gospel to everyone so that they might be reconciled to God. This is simply an account of how some of them became radically unreconciled. And the problem is that they got to the point where they saw right as wrong and wrong as right. That's when you cannot repent. Because you can't see truth. I can't repent if I can't see there's something to repent of. Does that make sense? And that's what happened with them. And I would put to you that's exactly what's happening in our culture today. Not just with homosexuality, that's the example here, but with all sorts of things because we have decided it is not Scripture or God who decides right and wrong. It is us and or, and we really don't say us, although we'd like to make it that way, the cultural consensus. Because if the cultural consensus is different than what I personally believe, um, for most people, pretty soon, they're going to bend to the cultural consensus. It's an extraordinarily powerful force. And that's not news, by the way. That's been going on for millennia. I'm going to stop there for a minute. Are there any, are there any questions about this? Because this is, it's pretty straightforward, I think, in the scripture, but it's also a pretty big thing today in the American church and in the American culture. Does anybody have any questions? Comments? Thoughts? Rotten fruit? Okay. We're going to go ahead. By the way, I'm going to give you these study guides and so forth and their approximations. Typically, after we're done with most of the introductory stuff, we'll be right on, but I'm never going to promise we'll be exactly those verses and passages. I'm not going to, in five minutes, cover a chapter and a half. I'm not going to cheat the scriptures, so to speak, that much. So tonight we will not get all the way through this passage, but I'll still give you the study guide for next week, because next week we'll finish this, or, or the next session, and then go on. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Uh, I love this one, disobedient to parents. How many of you would have put that one in that list? You know? I mean, there's all of these things that, you know, murder. Disobedience to parents, well, uh, sin is sin. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. You break the law. You're condemned by the law. Okay. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Let's stop there for a moment, probably stay there and then finish uh, 2 to 3.20 next week. What you've got is a very clear statement by Paul. And remember the group he's, he's teaching. We are a very diverse church. We're diverse ethnically. We're diverse socioeconomically. We're diverse in terms of cultural and subcultural backgrounds. We don't have anything on the diversity of Rome. They were from all over the known world. And in fact, 
the lower classes, which were responding to the gospel, were way more diverse than the upper classes, which were the Roman elite, the more powerful ones. Okay? So they have lots of cultural norms. They have lots of cultural expectations. They're coming from all sorts of different backgrounds of what's right and wrong. And Paul doesn't say, you know, we're, we're really different. We've got to be patient with each other and understand we're all coming from different places. Paul simply says, no, God's already told us right and wrong. Nobody's got an excuse. Now, he is going to go on and say that there's some who's got even more responsibility because God spelled it out through the law. But, no, he's told all of us. He's made it clear to all of us, and we can all understand this. But what's happened is we've said, no, we want what we want. We're going to ignore what God says, and therefore go after what we want. And God, after a while, not immediately, but after a while, God says, okay, that's what you're going to get. He quits striving with them. There's no conviction of the Spirit at all. And, and hands them over to that. What happens then is they sit in that, they propagate that, they encourage others in that. Now, if, if I'm correct and the scriptures are correct, that the penalty of sin is they, they're deserving of death. Paul says later in this letter, the wages of sin is death. If that's true, then if I encourage someone else to make, in essence, themselves God, to follow cultural norms, even though God says it's wrong, I'm encouraging them to destruction. We need to stop and think about that. What our society frequently calls tolerance is not tolerance. It is enabling. And it is enabling destruction. Now, having said that, we've got to be very careful because Christians have a nasty habit sometimes of, uh, okay, I, I now accept that, and then we turn around and we act like we hate those people. <laughs> well, the problem with that is that Jesus died for those people. There's no hate there. It's all love. But that love never says there is no sin. There is no price for sin. That love says that sin's real. I'll take the penalty and you can avail yourself of that. But there is a condition. And we're going to be talking about those conditions throughout this letter. Salvation is not because Jesus did it and it's done and doesn't matter what we do. Salvation is through faith. And as we're going to discover, faith is a big word. It is not about, okay, I believe that, so I guess I'm in. It is far bigger than that. And certainly Paul makes that clear. Okay, it's 8.30. <coughs> Excuse me, we're going to stop there for tonight. Um, we will pick up where we left off, so we're not going to just get rid of that. However, understand, if you don't ask a specific question about a word, a passage, whatever, I'm going to assume you pretty well understand. I'm going to teach through it, but I'm not going to worry about a specific thing that you might be interested in. I'm going to count on you bringing that up. So, for next week, 
or next session. I keep saying next week. I apologize. Don't be here next week. Be over with FX. Here's the study guides. And if you signed up uh, for the study guide list, then I will send that out. I'm going to say tonight, but I think I better not promise it given last week's lack of follow-through. All right. I will turn this off. And thank you guys for being here. And we'll see you in a few weeks.